Hello and welcome back to the fourth episode of our International Women's Day series. Today's episode is about women and justice. I'm joined by three women from the Young Fabians Criminal Justice Network who are going to introduce uh, themselves and talk about how they've uh, gotten involved in the field of criminal justice. And we're going to be talking about the barriers faced by women in this field and why it's so important to have women being represented in this field. Hi, my name's Carla. I'm the chair of the Criminal Justice Network and women's officer for the LGBTQ plus I advocacy group. And my pronouns are she, her. I am in the process of becoming a lay magistrate, I hope. It's a year long process of which I'm very, very nearly done. Hi, my name is Priscilla and I'm the vice chair of the Criminal Justice Network. My pronouns are she and her. I'm an inspiring a barrister for criminal and immigration law and I'm from, from Los Angeles, California. So I'm an international student. I'm Holly, uh, my pronouns are she, her. I'm the women's officer for the Criminal Justice Network and I'm also one of the co-chairs for the LGBTQIA plus network. Um, I'm in my first year of a law conversion course um, and I'm also a civil servant. And like Priscilla, I'm also aspiring to be um, a barrister in uh, criminal justice. So like you've all got slightly different backgrounds coming into um, the legal field. Should we talk about how um, you've got involved in in the field. Should we start with um, Carla? Um, do you want to tell us your story of how you got involved in this career? Yeah, so I, my background is in engineering and I work in uh, tech health, so it's completely nothing to do with uh, criminal justice at all. However, I am really interested in the laws that we have within society and understanding kind of where these laws are failing. Um, for me, the best place to understand where society needed to change and and as a result, kind of what laws need kind of making or, or, or changing was within the criminal justice system because the law is this thing that's supposed to be applied to everybody. And if that's the case, as a lay magistrate, I wanted, you know, the people who are enacting justice to be as similar to me as possible. Um, and if you look at the makeup of the magistrate system, uh, it's it's very much not that. It's very male dominated and dominated by the over 50s. And I just didn't feel that that was an appropriate representation of society. So that's that's really why I got involved. Yeah, like representation is really important. And we're going to talk about that a bit more. And Priscilla, you said you're from Los Angeles? Yes. So did you get involved in Los Angeles? So I have a background in Los Angeles in immigration law. My dad is a case prepper. So I was the, the, the little kid always alongside my dad in courts, you know, seeing all these like superheroes, like these lawyers, you know, sprinting up and down these stairs, you know, and they, you know, there's one minute they're drinking coffee, the other they, they're, they're doing such a big change. And for me to be, to go to the UK was, a big stretch you know I had no one here I didn't know any friends I didn't have any family 5,000 miles away from your comfort zone is quite a big jump and also studying a jurisdiction that is similar but very different than yours and so I decided to get into it because I wanted 
you know, the intellectual challenge, you know, the most inspiring change. And I believe that the criminal justice system, you know, becoming a criminal barrister was that route for me to do. And obviously I bring my American values to the UK, um, willing or unwilling of the Brits, but that's the reason why I actually got involved. So, yeah. I'm interested to know what those values are and and how we can learn from them. And Holly, how have you found being a mature student and um, having this career? Yeah, being a mature student is weird, especially as it's been during the pandemic. So I had um, I worked for a few years in like politics and lobbying um, in the charity sector uh, before starting my course in September of last year. And I study and work you know at the same time at the moment. Um, obviously, in lockdown, it's in some ways been easier because there's not the usual like distractions of usual day-to-day life but it has also been quite an isolating experience to be going to uni like virtually haven't met any of my classmates at all we don't get to have that like social interaction that you would get in normal times the um you know the like facility to ask your tutors questions after class and have a bit of a quick chat with them for advice or a bit of help obviously isn't really there so it's yeah so it's been a strange experience and I'm looking forward to um my next year so that's one of the benefits of studying part-time is that my course is going to be two years instead of one which means I will get a year of that like in-person experience which will be really good I'm really looking forward to that um from September um but yeah so in terms of why I decided to make the shift I've always been really interested in like criminal justice and criminology it's a shame that we couldn't be joined by Lauren um who's also from the network and she's a criminologist so she could speak to this a lot better than I can but I've always been interested in the like you know this is going to sound really blairish the causes of crime um and how we can kind of tackle those and make society a, a more pleasant and safer place for everybody including people who get wrapped up in the criminal justice system from a perpetrator side um you know for particularly low-level offenders young people drug offenders etc i firmly believe that prison is usually not the best best place for them and we need to find other ways of dealing with that you know social challenge uh, whether that's a health a health perspective or restorative justice or whatever um and yeah so I'm just really excited now at this point in my life to be kind of making that shift and feeling like I'm moving into an area that I've been passionate about for like 10 years um yeah in the last episode we had we were talking about how um you know like we've got to look at the cause of things and take preventative measures and not just treat the outcomes so kind of yeah Um, I think that's that's one of the things that I really believe in in terms of representative society for for lay magistrates as well I fully acknowledge that I'm not from a working class background I'm from a very much middle class background and have never had to really struggle for anything and I'm really if I do get into the the lay magistrates I'm really keen on those people who are struggling right now and who are children right now to consider this as something that they should do as a voluntary basis because it's their stories and it's their ability to see how the system can act on them and their peers that is is the point in which we can change you know it takes so long for laws to be changed it takes so long for people to become barristers and to be trained you can become a lay magistrate within a year our ability to radically change the justice system and how it's carried out 
is within our grasp within a few years if we change, you know, 95% of, of cases are heard within the magistrate's court. And, and there is the ability to change that relatively quickly versus other routes into the law. And so if, if, I, if I am successful in this, it's something that I'm really keen to, to get people involved with. You know, people from different backgrounds should be represented when they are standing in court as a perpetrator. They shouldn't see somebody completely disassociated from themselves. You know, the person who, who's passing down those judgments should be able to understand from, from a place of um, experience, you know. Definitely. Um, should we go on to representation in the field since we've started talking about it and it's so important in like every aspect. Um, also, like it's important to have like women represented in the field. Is it like, I'm not sure, is it um, roughly equally men and women or is it majority males in the field? So for the barrister field, especially the criminal bar, is heavily disproportionate still. Um, you know, especially during lockdown with pupillage application, the numbers have been coming to the bar council and, you know, women are, you know, not accepted as much, you know, for these, um, these pupillage uh, opportunities and even less their BAME women, you know, it's kind of like the bottom tier. And as, you know, when you flip through chambers, you know, as, you know, you're excited to apply, you're kind of stalking the chambers to see what you can put in your pupillage applications, you do see some women pop up and it seems like they're on the bottom tier. You know, you don't see retention, you know, for QCs, you know, you don't see that many of them. And, you know, it is a bit disheartening, you know, because you don't see as many people that look like you. And I know as, you know, I'm a proud Latina and I, I, I don't see any one of me, you know, in, in the bar. And, you know, it is intimidating, you know, am I good enough and can I, be part of the chambers and it is something that you know I think women do struggle especially in the legal profession to become a barrister or a solicitor you know you kind of feel like is it worth it because I don't see myself and you know it's you know the fight of continuously rounding against the door to say I'm here you can't ignore me for much longer you know I'm gonna be a gnat you know I'm going to be there and so it's it is shocking still the things and I, I applaud chambers for addressing it um however I think there's still more change that is that is needed yeah I was just going to come in with um some stats which I've just found um there's a really great organization fairly new called Bridging the Bar which provides like mentorship and uh, mini pupillage opportunities to people from various backgrounds um and they've got stats on their website which I've just looked up so pupil barristers 80% white 20% BAME and then within that BAME category um the nebulous <laughs> category it's 34 percent asian 20 percent mixed and 13 percent black um, in terms of the disability employment gap so like the percentage of employed disabled people of working age is 13.4 which is still obviously pitifully low but then when you compare that to disabled barristers it's six percent um in terms of sexual orientation 
92% heterosexual um, and 8% LGBTQIA+, which is obviously way, way, way lower than in general society. So I think, you know, what Priscilla was, was saying in terms of intersectionality is really important as well. Like, as a white woman, I see a lot more people that that look like me you know white women than a lot of other people who want to go into the profession do it's still pretty woeful but it's still a huge privilege that I have but then when you take into account LGBT and disability obviously it goes way down so yeah the profession does have a big problem and just there are organizations like Bridging the Bar like I said who are trying to do good stuff um but it's a big mountain to climb particularly at that at that high level yeah, just to echo what Holly said, you know, her inspiration for in stats made me quickly look up the stats as well. Um, for this year for pupillage, you know, um, you know, and just to describe what pupillage is, it's kind of like this apprenticeship that um, individuals that want to become a barrister you know, do one year and then um, so on and so on. But the stats say that this year's success rate, because of the pandemic as well, um, BAME applicants of obtaining pupillage has been 3%, um, 3.3%, apologies. And the success rate for white applicants is 8.7%. And this stat jumps to 17% if you, um, if your parent is a barrister or a judge. So there is a disproportionate of getting into the field, you know, because pupillage only comes once um, a year and, you know, you kind of like scramble to find something in the meantime. And, it gets even further down when you have intersectionality with LGBTQI, you know. Um, so it's it's a bit it's a bit daring, but uh, me and Holly are in the fight. <laughs> so to to also go on the stats machine, I looked it up because I was thinking to my interviews, um, the magistrates panels that I happened to see were all female, which led me to kind of reassess my statement around actually what have I remembered seeing in terms of the stats and it's over 50% is over 50 I think or is over 50% is over 40 and that's the stat whereas 56% of magistrates are actually women so we're kind of about evenly represented what with the population being 55% women so we're doing okay there um, and I think one of the possible reasons in that is a they have had a massive campaign over the past, I think, decade to improve, like drastically improve their figures. They still have terrible figures around um, BAME representation and around uh, representing anybody under the age of 40. And considering you can stand to be a magistrate from the age of 18, 18 to 40 is obviously quite a big age gap. Um, considering the cutoff is actually 65. So, you know, it's, it's really badly represented within the youth. But when it comes to women, I think the fact how you can approach it and it, it, it varies up and down the country, but it's this kind of it's a 13 days a year commitment or 26 half days a year, which when I applied, thought was totally manageable with a full time job. If you can speak to your employers, which when I was uh, looking for a new job last year, that was something very much on my kind of questions list for employers around how did they view um, magistrates and, and what did they do around their time. Um, so employers, I don't think they can stop their employees becoming magistrates, but you can obviously have like quite punitive kind of HR kind of measures that take that in, you know, you have to make up the time. Whereas I have to say, 
I totally praise my company. They're not asking me to make any time up or any time back. So that's 30, essentially 13 full paid days a year that they're losing me for. And I'm just fortunate enough to go to a company where that is the case. I mean, I, d- I did look for that. Um, however, when I was going through my interview process, the, pe- the women that I spoke to who worked within either within the NHS or I think I spoke to a few teachers as well. They said when they started their careers really early on, so looking 20 years ago now, it was very much within, if you worked within those sectors, absolutely, we're proud to have you as a magistrate. But they said as they got further and further within their careers and the the kind of the work environments they were in were becoming more restrictive, um, it was almost actively discouraged from taking up those kind of commitments within society, which is cutting out huge sways considering, you know, uh, the, the majority of teachers are women, nurses are women, care staff are women. And, and those sectors of the of the workplace have been increasingly um, discouraging this, this um, route into to, to lay magistrates. So actually, is the gains that we've made within the last decade, are they going to be eroded by the pressures that are exerted on, on women within the other areas where, where they're actually gaining their income? Because this is a voluntary role. Um, so I think that's that's really interesting around how they've made up that, but equally the, the roles in which they're working in are are being discouraged not to not to go for it. It's a shame that like that's kind of it's becoming more restrictive and like like in the episode we just did as well we were saying how like you know people saying feminism's gone too far and stuff but do you think that that's is that just women who it's becoming more restrictive or I guess maybe roles that women are more likely in or I think it's the roles that you're more likely in so I don't think if you're a woman in in those roles then your employer would actively discourage you more but I do think then if you think about it, if your employer is saying, we well, have to make it up in your own time, women are then time poor outside of paid employment because we know that women make up the majority of non-paid work within society. So if your employer is not taking that view, it will, even though it's they're taking the same view, a man versus a woman, actually it's going to disproportionately affect the women because of their roles outside of the workplace where when they're not actually being paid but they're still having to do those those elements of work and thinking care, care responsibilities, et cetera. I was going to say the same thing about being time poor in relation to going into the career as a mature student. I mean, to be fair, this applies to any kind of like career change, but because of the demands of law conversions and pupillages, like they're so, so time intensive um, that even though I'm on a course for mature students, literally no one in my class has kids um which is kind of a bit it doesn't really make sense like you'd expect that out of a class of like 25 people all mature students someone would have kids but no one does um and I think that just speaks to to what Carla is saying is that you know while it sounds great and it works well for someone like me who's young to be able to to study um part-time around work the demands of it are just way too much for anyone that has caring responsibilities of like really any form in my opinion how could like we help women to be able to like do this as well as having a family should there be more like paid leave and like other laws to protect them that if they can take mother leave and not be like fired 
Yeah, I think paid leave, um, you know, study leave would make a big difference. So in, in the civil service, I am eligible for paid study leave, but almost no other careers have that. Um, if that was adopted more widely, it would help, you know, women um, to be able to do that. Also more flexibility around like the study mode of courses. So for uh, the law conversion, the options are one year and two years. You know, they could think about extending it over even three years or four years to actually then it, it does drag it out, which has its downsides as well. Um, also in terms of cost and things, but you know, it potentially would then be more accessible to people that don't have as many free hours in the week, but still really want to do it. Um, and then I think also understanding from the universities themselves. So this hasn't been an issue over the past year because of the pandemic. We've all been studying from home, but very few universities provide accessible childcare. Um, so, for example, if a working mother wanted to study on the weekend, she'd have to pay extra and like drop a child off at, with a babysitter or something like that. You know, whereas the university, a lot of them are pretty damn well off. They could afford to provide like a crash um, at a subsidised rate for some of their students. Um, but for, and some of them do. But for the most part, they don't. That would help with the accessibility as well, I think. Um, Carla, how have you found um, like family and social life and career balance um, with pressure of being involved while balancing your work commitments and all the deadlines? So. I'm a bit sceptical because when I applied, I agreed to the minimum commitments. And I just want to preface this with, I found out in 15 days if I've been accepted. So um, hopefully I, I will be able to, to yeah, to, to be a magistrate. Um, when I did my first interview, I was interviewed by a manal, which is what my two female bosses call all male panel, which is great. Um, uh, they were all white and uh, they all had white hair and it was just a really fun experience for me it wasn't it was really awful it was terrifying and I almost had to take the rest of like the afternoon off work because it was so unbelievably stressful I had a pounding headache after I finished because their opening question which I think everybody knows your opening question even within like really hard interviews your opening question the purpose is to make the candidate feel comfortable so opening question was how many days can you commit to this? Because I've committed so far this year, 100 days. <laughs> and I was thinking, I have a full-time job. I'm applying for my mortgage. My partner is taking part-time work. So she can do part-time study. I'm supporting the two of us kind of financially, the most, if you see what I mean. There's no way I can take a step back from my job. And I know that the first qualifying question within the interview is usually understanding that you can commit to this role, the minimum commitment's five years. I'd gone from 13 days a year, which I'd agreed with my employer, found an employer who would commit to that, said that I could plan it in and around, you know, it's, it's more just more than one day a month. That's totally manageable with a full-time job. To somebody then saying, I actively need to be able to commit 100 days a year. Might I also mention at this point, all three were retired. And so I felt completely intimidated and, and just thought, I, I was imagining having to have conversations with my bosses. At this point, I still hadn't passed my probation period within my new role. And I'm now thinking, oh my God, what, what have I taken on? Maybe I can't do it. And so actually, if I'd not been successful in that stage, I would have never reapplied because I would have thought, 
there's no way I can commit that to that role. If you put that into polar opposite of my second interview, from which it was still two men, but there was a there was a female there as well interviewing me, who made it absolutely plainly clear that if I could commit 13 days and no more, that was absolutely fine because that was the commitment. The commitment was not more, not less than 13 days. It was 13 days. And anything on top of that was at your own discretion. And there was no kind of emphasis put on, you know, you would be pressured. Whereas in the first interview, I felt like there was going to be absolute pressure for me to commit to time more than 13 days. So that that wasn't great, that first interview. And it really completely put me off. And it was only after I had that second interview where I really drilled down and was like, look, I need to know this because if this is the case, I'm not going to say to you, yes, I can do it and I can't. And it was only after I'd been made triply reassured that that wasn't going to be the case that I was that I left feeling, okay, you know, this is something that I can definitely manage. Um, So I guess it depends on who you ask within the just within the magistrate system if you ask the three guys that interviewed me first time round, they'd say there's no way you can do a full-time job on this but if, if you ask the, the lady who interviewed me um second time round, she would say it was absolutely possible and actively was encouraging people who had jobs to take up roles as magistrates so yeah. I mean it sounds like if they've written that it's a requirement of 13 days of the year like it sounds like they were just saying that in a patronizing way more than really expected anyone who does part-time work even so that's a, a third of your, your year <laughs> well, uh, absolutely <laughs> absolutely and I felt totally patronized within that interview which is as we all know if anybody's been involved in interviewing is a great way to make your candidates feel you know patronized and put on the spot so and um so I'll ask Priscilla and Holly now, how have you found being a student in this field during lockdown? Because I know I found it really unusual getting involved in the Fabian Society and the Labour Party during lockdown. So how's your experience been? So um, starting the bar course in lockdown was an experience, not only receiving books in the mail, you know, and but it's when in the bar course, like there's a lot of advocacy, you know, that is where you shine the most, you know, that is, you are learning the trade as becoming a barrister or to begin as one. And so it, it was odd. And um, even more so when I had to do my pro bono um, obligations and balance my bar course, I was jumping from team meeting to another team meeting, and then like running to the young Fabians at night. And so yeah, it's been struggling, but, and I think it's also with the legal field, there's a lot of work. And usually when you're at, when you're at school, you know, this is my time to study. I'll study in the library, you will have your commute and you will go back, but you don't have that now in lockdown. And I realized that it was a toll on my mental health um, because, you know, I, I'm not from here, you know, and the bar you know there are some really 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 rude people in the bar sometimes and you know um I've been told by a barrister point blank you'll make a lovely barrister's wife but never a barrister and I remember that feeling I remember that feeling because I did not go to a Russell group um university I was not from here and I realized I needed to do 
10 times more. And, you know, in when you're doing classes, you can't gauge where people are in their, you know, studies. Usually you can feel like, oh, I'm not that bad. I, I'm not that behind. But you don't have that during lockdown. You're always feeling like you're behind. You're not doing enough. So my mental health went to the toilet in December. It was kind of a godsend for me to go back home and recharge because it it was bad. But I think um, at the end of it, you know, when um, talking to people, especially other barristers, you know, or uh, my tutors or Carla and Holly, you know, I realized, well, I'm actually not doing that bad. I'm actually doing okay. And, you know, um, and I think that's what lockdown has done to students. You know, it has constant self-doubt that you're not doing enough. You know, you are behind or you should be out on the computer 24 seven, which is not healthy whatsoever. You know, there is a point why to go out and to talk to people, to network, to make friends, you know, make these connections because the law is between individuals. It is not between you and Microsoft or Apple, <laughs> you know, it is between individuals. And I think that's what people are, especially students, we're struggling right now. So, um, yeah. That's, that's so dreadful, like that comment that man made to you, like that sounds like not something from the 21st century, like, and it's unbelievable like the things that are still happening <laughs> but um yeah I'm, I'm sure you're doing like much better than you think and the thing is with lockdown you think that you, you should have more time in theory but if anything you're not getting that re-energizing uh like anything to re-energize you that will make you more productive and in the time you're spending working so it, it's it, it's almost harder to get the work-life balance because there's not much of a social life and there's not much of a recharge but um and if I could just quickly like universities haven't stepped up their support at all in response to that and this isn't just in the legal sector this is in general we've all seen all the coverage about it the expectations are just as high and yet you know we're all facing tutors that don't know how to use the systems you know files not being sent out at the correct time like delays, tech problems, this social isolation, which Priscilla described, um, and the universities just have done absolutely nothing in order to, um, yeah, to adapt to that situation. So as it's been, it's been, it's been pretty tough. And I don't think that's just isolated to, to people in law. I think that's across the board. So can I give a shout out at this point to the company that I work for, which I'm, I'm not going to mention, but they, we had a company conference at the beginning of the year, which is usually over two days, but they realized that this would be extremely stressful for everybody to try and fit in. So they did it over the course of a week so that you could still arrange your work and your life because they have adjusted so much to people within the lockdown every single month. And I think this is where universities could absolutely learn. Every single month we have a mental health questionnaire uh, to touch point with the whole company to see if it's bobbing up and down to see if they make any need to make any adjustments we have that as well in the civil service yeah yeah so they, they've been really on that they've really mandated that senior management should be taking and scheduling lunch breaks in so that all staff below them so if senior management's doing it with their you know no time at all in their diaries if they're taking an hour and being quite prompt with when they finish and start work that that will disseminate to the rest of the organization 
And there's this real big emphasis on splitting your home life and your work life to make sure that, I think, what was the phrase? Are you working from home or is your home your workplace? Something along those lines. And for so many people, you know, they're having conference calls in their bedroom with clients. And, you know, the company has made absolutely sure that, you know, that's okay. And, you know, that they've really gone and above and beyond. You know, they send us care packages in the post as well. So I just, and they've also, to speak to your expectations, both Priscilla and Holly, that you're both expected to perform to the same level. The company's turned around to us and said, we know that you can't perform to the same level. And you know what? That's okay. All of the bonuses got adjusted this year. All of the company expectations all got adjusted because we went, we know that you're not going to be able to do this. We've taken on reality and we've notched it back this year because it's just not acceptable. And so to hear kind of, you know, that, it, that it's not, the support hasn't been there is is terrible. And just Priscilla, that man, like I hope his name is on a list. And I'm, I'm just going to mention after the pod, podcast what I recommend you doing. Um, that something extremely similar happened to my mom um, when she was not too far off your age. And when she uh, got into parliament, the person that had said that to her, she was in a photograph of, of a group of MPs and she stood directly in front of this guy that had said that to her, stumbled backwards and put both of her heels straight into his feet with her full weight and just fell completely back onto him and he like fell on the floor with like crippled feet afterwards and I know it's <laughs> really it's a really kind of it's a bad thing to take out something that somebody's done to you in like a physical way but I just really hope his name is in a little black book somewhere and he's going to get his comeuppance because um, just people like that don't deserve anything if they're willing to dish it out like that. Well, what I say so far, like I have a mentee, you know, she was, you know, she, she was really scared about these things because she does, she has a working class accent. She's not from London and she was quite intimidated, you know, to fit into this world where they have a certain look, a certain sound, a certain d- degree. And uh, what I told her is, you know, I said to her, because I'm confident right now does not mean that I'm fully 100% all the time I have broken down but I was lucky to have a good support system especially from women that I can you know encourage like get up you can do it you have to do it is not is much bigger than you you have to do it for good and you know you do that and what I you know what I say is like you take that but make it in a positive way. Like I smile about it at this moment because I'm I'm saying, damn right, I'll be a great barrister's wife as a barrister, you know, and we'll be, you know, and that's what I'm going to twist it on because that is the only way to continue forward, you know, um, to make it in a positive way because if if you're all boggled down by the smallest little things, it is difficult and. It's, it's important that women are represented in that sense to say, look, we've gone through there, we've been there, we understand. Just, so like, just, uh, you know, shrug it off. Shrug it off and make it something positive. And you get to laugh about it, you know, one day. And, you know, 
by laughing about it, that I think that would make a big difference for the future aspiring uh, women that want to be in the criminal field or anywhere in any field, because they want to make sure that their fears are they're, they're shared as well. So I think, yeah. <laughs> Um, but thank you, um, Carla. <laughs> I shall keep it noted. <laughs> I, I love what you just said. It sounded like you're wearing like a cloak of female protection. That's like that's what I was imagining. Like this, the support network around you, like these all these invisible women that are like, no, we will protect you. You've got to do it for the sisterhood. But we've got your back. I love, I love that. Support groups are so important and they're really good because they're like, um, it's like how men have got their, their boys clubs or they've had boys clubs in the past, which is like their version of it. So it's good that we have like these women's support groups. Um, so like we touched on um, re representation earlier. Um, I'd like to ask like what, uh, what are the barriers that, um, is it just representation that or what are the other barriers that these minor that minority people face? Um, like LGBTQ plus people or um, BAME people, um, what are some of the barriers that they face? You know, some of the barriers is, you know, the, the basic things, you know, even speaking, you know, I do have an American accent and I, um, you know, I have seen so many people um, come from several different countries and they do, you know, they, they have amazing advocacy. I mean, like, I have a friend that is Cyp um, Cypriot, Greek Cypriot, and she is, I firebolt in her advocacy. But people, you know, people said to her, wow, you can speak, you're so fluent. That's not what she was saying. You need to hear what she's saying, you know? And, you know, I think that's one thing, you know, the barrier of um, not being from here. And uh, to me, when I see someone that is like not from the UK and I'm like, you go, it is hard. It is hard to do all those applications, making sure you're always there. You're like running against the grain. And it's great because like your fellow, uh, you know, you have your um, Brits that are just like cheering you on, just like, keep going, keep going. But, you know, there's, that is a barrier. And there is a barrier as well as, you know, um, it's just the access to information, I have to say, is the biggest barrier of them all. You know, a lot of people don't understand what is a barrister and what is a solicitor? What is a paralegal? What is, who is a late magistrate and who is a judge? You know, there's not these access to these things. And I feel like it's, you know, it's been told, well, you should know, you should know this. No, well, not everyone comes from, you know, a a, um, a background of judges or lawyers, you know, they have to figure on their own. And I feel like a better access, you know, will de demystify this whole process of just saying, look, this is what happens, you know, A, B, and C. And yes, it is difficult. No one likes land law, you know, it's fine. It, you're gonna do great, you know, don't, don't feel don't feel intimidated. It's okay to feel like you're an imposter into things. It's fine. But it's that information, that dialogue, you know, the knowledge that is the biggest barrier of them all. And I think that's what stops from people from going into this field. And I think that's something that should be heavily addressed by anyone, women or men, everyone in that sense. 
Can I come in on um, disability? So I I have uh, non-visible disabilities. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, but I have been absolutely appalled at the lack of physical access that a lot of courts and chambers have because you kind of think, you know, modern world, most places understand that they need to have a ramp like that is so basic that's like 1980s 1990s level of inclusion and so many chambers and courts are in really old buildings and they're listed um and they haven't taken the steps to actually find a way of, of creating that physical access and like that's just such a it's such a obvious and depressing like lack of progress in the sector and it's indicative of a more general approach to disability which is just not considered not thought about you know mental health for particularly like junior junior lawyers both sisters and barristers is not even considered at all because they're just expected to be working all the time and it's very high pressure and all the you know all the other barri um, barri barriers that Priscilla has spoken about do take a mental toll and the sector just doesn't really care um, I think it massively massively has a long way to go on disability. Yeah so if I could speak to kind of both your points which is I think because you can get involved with lay magistracy from kind of before you go to university, if you don't know what to do and you have an interest in this, I think having an ability to, like Priscilla said, find the knowledge that you don't know exists. And I think the lay magistracy is, is a way in which you can do that. It's that, you know, it's, it's on the face of it available for everybody. And if we can get that, level of representation within you know 95% of the, the courts uh, and, and the decisions are, are made at that level so if we can get the representation early in in there you can have people that transition from people uh, like being a magistrate into you know making it a professional career um, and, and I think if we demystify that process if we can get access to these voluntary roles then you may be able to have you know people with children who want to progress into this because they will have built up a support network or a network of people that they can go to and contact and that's what it's about when when you need access it's about unfortunately it still is about who you know and and the experience that you have and I see lay magistracy as a way for people to have their foot in the door um, that don't come from those backgrounds and those families that Priscilla is talking about. I mean, that shocking statistic around 3% if you don't have anybody within the family versus 17 if you do. And also to speak to Holly, I know within the, the, the whole of the, the magistrate within the UK, they have an LGBT advocacy group and they have another advocacy group, which might be women's, but they, I don't think they have a disability advocacy group. And it needs that. It needs those people that say, excuse me, I can't get access to this building. What are you going to do about it? Excuse me, I can't hear in this courtroom. What are you going to do about it? Because hello, if those people who are, rep, you know, carrying out justice can't get into the system, what about the people who are involved in the justice system who are also a part of society? How do they get into the buildings? How do they access these areas? You know, I just, yeah, I, I want... I feel as if if everybody could filter through the magistracy system, that would be absolutely great because then we would have a very, 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 very different justice system. I think that's a really great point. 
we're not we're not talking about this representation in you know the legal sector because it's fun or nice or just whatever a good thing in abstract it is a good thing but fundamentally the point of it is because you know for Priscilla and I who want to go and be advocates and Carlo who's going to be sitting making enormous enormous decisions about people's lives you need to have people that understand the real world and you know it's literally it's it's written into law in both the UK and the US you know jury of your peers um and if that's not, and if you can't be represented by someone that, who is vaguely a peer, if, if you know, your judge isn't someone that is vaguely your peer, then that's completely, you know, that's, that's going to completely fail the most like marginalised people in society. This whole representation isn't just because it's fun and nice and is good for us. It's because it actually makes the whole system function better. Definitely. Like um, the thing we're calling it barrier, like thing about diversity is that like it, it just... Uh, it makes everyone's thinking better, more original, more, you know, with all the like different um, perspectives. Um, and like, you know, coming from America, that's in my eyes, that's a real benefit to have two different outlooks or to have an alternative outlook. It's like not even a barrier. So it's a shame that it's seen that way. But we're kind of running out of time now. <laughs> So this week, unfortunately, it's been, we had International Women's Day, but we've also had the very sad news about the death of Sarah Everard um, when she was walking home in, to her home in South London. And from, from this event, um, there are groups that are trying to um, improve justice for women. So I think the reason that our network needs to talk about this and, and will pass comment is because at the end of today, it may be that our government has put forward laws, which means that if you assault a female statue over £5,000, it may have a longer term than if you assault a woman who is presumably worth less than £5,000. And I think that's why we need representation, so that the people making the laws aren't making them like that. Definitely. To, to piggyback on that a wise small remark that has been said to me is you study the law you participate in the law and you change the law and I think that's why it's so important and crucial for women to be represented because in that sense as being in the legal system or any field that is closely to the criminal justice system is the reason how we can change the law for the protection of women and for those atrocities that has happened over the weekend, never happen again. And Carla, do you want to plug your events coming up with the network? Absolutely. So I'm not sure when this is going out, but we may have just had a very successful uh, Uyghur event um, around the Uyghur Muslims, which we will have just done, I'm assuming. Next week, we will have a all members meeting, which I would welcome anybody to come along to, where we will be hopefully talking about the pictures that we want for the pamphlet and it should be a really fun environment you get to come along and meet the exec so that should be a really fun event and we also were looking to do with other networks a series of mini events as to how different people around uh, all different areas of society can get into justice which is kind of what we've been talking about so women in justice which is this podcast but also BNAE injustice working class within justice disability within justice LGBT LGBT within justice so it's all about understanding the you know breaking down those barriers so we're going to do a series of mini events so please keep your ears eyes and everything else peeled 
um, to watch this space because we're looking to do lots of partnerships with other networks to demystify the justice system and to make it available for all. Wonderful. So thank you to all of the guests today and can't wait to see all the changes you're going to make <laughs> in this world. But um, And yeah, um, thank you everyone for listening to this episode and please tune into the next one. And if you're in the Young Fabians, uh, please check out the events with the Criminal Justice Network.